there's a lot of people that are from here and they go away and they come back and they, they, they are proud of their heritage. They're proud of being from the Eastern shore and Minnesotans or Rangers are the exact same way. They go away, they go to college, they go do something else, but they always want to come back. I mean, in Minnesota, winters in Minnesota, let me tell you, they are bad. It's not uncommon to have, you know, 25 feet of snow and minus 35 degree temperatures without wind chill. There was a woman that I met in Duluth in October, before, right, right sort of on the early edge of the winter season, who had lived in Florida. She was born in the range. She moved to Florida when she was three. And she was moving back to Minnesota from Florida, of all places, because she felt the range was her home. She belonged to Minnesota. Hi, this is Stephanie Fowler. And this is Tony Russo. And you're listening to another episode of So What's Your Story? A podcast in which we talk to authors and writers about their writing, their stories behind their stories, the writing process, and any other miscellaneous writing stuff that we decide to talk about. Today on the podcast, we have Jeffrey Smith, who wrote the historical fiction novel Misabi Pioneers. Jeffrey spent his early years out west in New Mexico and California, and then made his way to Austin, where he earned his English degree at the University of Texas in 1995. Several years later, he moved out to the East Coast, where he met his wife, and continued working on honing his writing skills. His fiction has appeared in outlets such as The Cynic Online Magazine, Everyday Fiction, Halfway Down the Stairs, and E-Fiction Magazine. In 2001, he began a collaborative effort to tell the story of how a remote forested area of Minnesota became America's greatest source of iron ore just before the dawn of the 20th century. Misabi Pioneers, published in 2014, is a historical fiction account that follows European immigrants and American businessmen as they rush to turn earth into metal. So welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thanks for having me, Steph. Thank you very much for being here. One of the things I kind of want to hit right off the bat is how you came to find this story and how you came to figure out what the Misabi Pioneers were all about. That's a great question. Uh, I get it a lot, actually. I'm sure you do. (laughs) Um, Partly I get it because everybody that knows me knows that I have never been to Minnesota. Only, Only twice in my life have I ever been to Minnesota. And both of those times were in relation to this after I took on the project of writing the book. Um, In uh, 2011, 2012, I was living in New Mexico on the Navajo Reservation with my wife and and our daughter. And I was a stay-at-home dad. And I'd finally had the opportunity to to focus on my work because I was home all the time. And uh, I was just writing as much as possible. And none of it was really very good, to be quite honest. (laughs) I'm not a short story writer, although I published a few short stories. But it's never really been my thing. I'm not very good at it because I'm a very wordy guy. And uh, so, but to try to make money as a writer, I decided I should do more than just write fiction. And so I started reaching out to try to, to try to get jobs actually as a writer to, to write essays or just get people to hire me to write things. Sure. And, uh, so I was online one day on one of the sites that I was looking for jobs. And I honestly, it was just, I found an ad for this woman who happened to also live in New Mexico and she was looking for someone to tell this story. Um, she didn't really say what the story was. All she said in the ad was that she was looking for somebody to write a novel that her dad had come up with an idea for. And my first thought was, well, that's really lame, but hey, it's a novel and I, maybe I could get paid a few hundred dollars for it, whatever. Sure. Um, so I contacted her and, and she 
was not interested in me at first. And the only connection we really had was that I lived in New Mexico too, but she was looking for someone who'd been to Minnesota who knew Minnesota and I never had. And the only thing as it turned out, uh, going for me was that I lived in New Mexico. And so I was close to her, although we never actually met in person. But what fascinated me about the story as she told me about it was that it, it really fell in line with, with an idea I had always had for stories that I wanted to write. And that was to write the stories about the, people who built America, to be quite honest, and to put it in a very simple way. And that is not like the men with money who actually paid for the building of America, like sure, the Rockefellers sure. or the Carnegies, but the men who actually got their hands dirty building America. Before I started working on the book, I was doing this incredible research on writing a series of short stories, because that's what I thought I should be writing, about the men who built the interstate highway system, which I still think would be a fascinating story. <laughs> um, although probably only in my own mind. Well, you could, you could come with me as I research my pigeon book, and oh, you God, could talk to the... Uh, <laughs> I, ha- I have a pigeon book. It's a running joke. <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like it could be it's fascinating. It's going to be as readable as your who built the <laughs> about the building of the highway. So so what fascinated me most about the story was that it was actually about the people that built America because the Mesabi Iron Range is where all of the iron in America has come from for the last 125 years. Every bit of iron in America, and in fact, for the first half of the 20th century, most of the iron in the world came from the Mesabi Iron Range. So we're talking about a group of immigrants who moved to a very small place in a state that was maybe 20 years old. I mean, uh, Minnesota became a state in, in the late 1850s or 1860s. So the state wasn't even 40 years old when these immigrants came to this country and literally started just digging holes in the ground and found iron. And they were like, wow, we could make a lot of money off of this. And it turned out they did. Wow. We've all seen these ads, and responding to one is, is kind of amazing to me. Like, I always... Because I, I, I do the same thing. You know, you're looking for work, you're looking for work, and you see that, and you're like, well, you feel like you're going to send them an email, and they're going to say, well, you know, we can, I'll, I'll respect you a lot if you write this, and, you know, you can have six, 16% of whatever we make when you've invested a year and a half of your life writing this. There was, there was a lot of that, yeah. I, I was, <laughs> in, initially, uh, our first conversation was that she was looking for a ghostwriter, which I was going to be really happy with because ghostwriters can make a huge amount of money up front. So my name wouldn't right. be on the book. She would pay me some gastronomical sum to just write. And I said, I'll just write a first draft of this book and give it to you, and it's done, and you pay me X amount of money. And she was like, um, I don't have any money. And, and then said, you're like, great, great. Yeah. And I said, okay, so um, how does this, work, how, uh, this isn't going to work. And so I, I, was, I was really excited about the story, but obviously there, there was some back-end side of it. But because I was so excited about the story and I thought, you know, this could really be something phenomenal. And it, and it, really, it really did fall right in line with all of the things that I have always wanted to write about and the people that I've wanted to write about. Um, <laughs> So, so we, we sort of hashed it out into an agreement, and she agreed to pay me a large percentage. Let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> so there's um, a co-author on here. Um, well, it says uh, a novel by Russell Hill and Jeffrey Smith. So yeah. this lady's father was Russell Hill. Yeah, so, so the, the further story behind it is, is that Russell Hill, which, who was her father, he died in 2011, two years before I'd even heard of the project. Um, and, and it was a story. He was born and raised on the Minnesota Iron Range. He was born in Eveleth and raised on the Iron Range. And his family is Finnish, uh, and the characters in the story, uh, the main character, is actually sort of somewhat based on his great-great-grandfather or grandfather. Um, 
he, he came up with the story originally in the 1960s and just sort of had this idea of telling a story about the Iron Range because the Iron Range is a microcosm of America. It was a not. It was, they weren't just Finnish immigrants that came to to Minnesota. It was it was Eastern European immigrants from all over Eastern Europe: Slovakians and Germans and and Cornishmen and Englishmen and Frenchmen. I mean, they were just from all over Eastern Europe, and they came there and they they were in their little enclaves, and they all spoke different languages, and they never talked to each other, and they they did different things, and they they made different foods, and they lived in. There was a Finn town, and there was a, a Slovakian town, and. And they didn't talk to each other. And the Finns were the biggest ethnic group up there. But over the course of the first half of the, the first, really the first quarter of the 20th century, these very disparate ethnic groups somehow came together and formed an entirely new cultural identity, which is what is called the range identity. And that's what they, they're rangers on the Minnesota Iron Range. And to this day, if you are a ranger, you are always a ranger. I mean, you are, there, there is a cultural identity there that doesn't exist anywhere else in America that I've ever seen, an identity of being from the Iron Range. That is phenomenal. When you think about different regions in America, it kind of almost reminds me of like the Waterman Skipjack right, yeah. sort of culture that we have here on the Delmarva Peninsula with the Chesapeake Bay, and there were the Skipjacks and the Watermen, and, you know, and that is sort of a very, um, you know, when people are in that culture, it is a, you know, it is a, it is a proud heritage that they have. And it kind of reminds me of kind of what you're saying with, you know, the people being in that town, having such a, that strong tradition. And that must've been incredible to be able to kind of like dig your fingers and to be able to like pull that out and write about that. It, it's been a really fascinating experience. I, I, I first went to Minnesota in the middle, sort of towards the end of actually writing the book. And, and, and it's, it's going to be a trilogy, and I'm working on the second one now. So I went, I went towards the end of writing this book to sort of get my feel for it and to try to do research for the next book. And I met so many people that were very helpful up there, and they were all so excited about somebody telling this story. And it's been told in various ways up there, but never quite like this. There are people that have written stories about maybe specific aspects of iron mining up there, but never never in a way quite like this, not in a way that we're trying to do, which is to try to tell a generational story about this development of this of this identity, of this cultural identity. Now um take me through how you did it. So is this is this like inspired like so he you read his novel and then wrote one kind of inspired by it? Because it's clearly not when it's, this isn't heavily edited. This is this is your this is your work based this is, on his. This is my work completely. He, he Russell had an original idea which he tried to develop over the course of probably forty or fifty years before he died. Uh, he he had sort of an original idea. He wrote some things, but he never really went very far. He basically wrote three or four chapters of the book. But his idea was to c- fictionalize the story almost completely. There were some really major figures, especially John Rockefeller. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Who's, who's kind of reviled on the Iron Range. They, right. People still don't like John Rockefeller for what, what he did um, to Leonidas Merritt, who's one of the other characters in the book. But um, Russell wanted to fictionalize all these characters, and so he changed all their names. And he made the story a, a much bigger story. And, and like I said, it was really three or four chapters. But his story was really about like the Rockefeller side. His story was about the money right. side and about how Rockefeller in the minds of the Iron Rangers stole stole the Iron Range from from the Minnesotans, which is what they think they, that he did. He basically stole it. And there's a much longer story there that I won't get into right now. But sure. um, so when I read the story, my idea was not to go with the rich people side. I wanted to go with the right. people that actually did the work. And so I took the story and said, you know, this 
it's not it's this isn't this isn't what I want to write and so I I basically threw most of it out kept kept the a couple of main characters Arthur Mackie in particular the main character in the book and and focused instead on on his role specifically as as a leader as sort of the first guy the guy we follow who's an outsider coming to this really weird place and and doing all of this work for me, Arthur is is the reader's eyes into a new world. That's exactly what I was thinking. They were saying he's 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 like the he he represents us. He's like let me. What's cool about a character like that is that you can get away with exposition without you know without throwing the brakes on and saying and now here's some expository writing. You yeah. know, it's like you, you're giving his experience, and through his experience, we get brought up to speed on what's going on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's, what I, that's what I enjoyed about it. And one of the other things that kind of blends into this um, is also the, the Native American aspect of the, the names. And um, when I first started reading it, uh, when I first started reading Masabi um, Pioneers, one of the things that kind of struck me almost immediately, and, and we had talked about this um, a, a few moments ago uh, when you came in, was your descriptions of the land, your descriptions of how the the colors and the sense of landscape was really kind of lovely and the first thing well hopefully that doesn't sound terrible to say it sounds lovely but it was it was so it was so lyrical in in such a way and it kind of reminded me of the sort of that native american sort of intonation of honoring the land and the colors and the looks and the feels and there's a moment where um early in the book the the main character is up in an airplane and he's kind of looking down over the land and there was this moment where i kind of connected immediately with that sense of landscape and land and there was uh, you know with the name misabi in the front you know that native american moment kind of pulls forward and i thought that was really well done and that was one of the things that kind of like initially kind of hooked me and kind of pulled me right in so i was like wow this is a really never been to minnesota but this sounds i mean it was just gorgeous in that description thank you thank you i, I one of the things that has struck me about not only about the culture of the range, but also the people of Minnesota and the people of the range in particular is how proud they are of the land where they live. I think for, I mean, I've always considered myself an environmentalist and I know a lot of people who are, and I think for an environmentalist who would go up to Minnesota and see the huge gaping holes that are in the ground up there would think this is a a devastation. But in Minnesota, this is something that they are amazingly proud of. They took a land that was covered in trees, and there was this rich iron ore basically sitting on the ground, and they dug it up, and they gave it to America. And without them, America would not be what it is today. I mean, we won World War II because of the ships that we built that sailed the, Came pac- out of Minnesota. the, the, that sailed the Pacific, and those ships were built with iron from Minnesota. We won World War One with iron that came out of that built planes that came out of Minnesota. I mean, this is—it's just skyscrapers would not be built if it weren't for the iron in Minnesota. We wouldn't have desks or chairs or stoves in our kitchens without the iron from Minnesota. Yeah, and is it sort of that integral moment of you find this little pocket of something that has such far-reaching repercussions and i would imagine for a writer for someone who wanted to tell the story of america to tell the story of the people that got their hands dirty i mean that had to feel like this lady might not be able to pay me money but i've got to tell this story it's pretty much what it was i just i just knew i had to tell the story and 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 i i was really happy that she when i started researching it and started reading about the area 
I was actually kind of glad that that we had passed through the ghostwriting aspect pretty quickly, right? Because I didn't want to to not have my name on this book. It was it's, it was a really important story for me personally to tell, and and I'm really proud of it. Well, I think that reflects in the in the in the in the work that you've done though, because you can tell when a writer, I think, and you probably know this as well, when you love what you're doing, the words seem to just come together, come together better than when you're like, I hate this thing. And I'm just making the word, I'm just trying to hit a limit so that I can move on to the next thing. But there's, there's a, a, a fantastic way that you've pulled these, these words together that I think really displays uh, your talent for sure. Thank you. Yeah, the um, one of the kind of also going back, I read. Um, I think it was in the on the thing about you. You sort of fell in love with machines when you're talking about like the stoves and our skyscrapers and the typewriter that that you found with your dad and that sort of kicking off <laughs> <laughs> your your love of letters. Um, yeah, I, I've been I've been I'm 44 now and I've I've really been writing since I was since I was probably 12 or 13, maybe 14. But I wrote my very first short story. Uh, on a Smith Corona typewriter that my father gave me. It was actually sitting in his office. My dad owned his own advertising agency, and they used to write all their copy on elect- they were electric typewriters. They weren't manual typewriters. They were the kind with where you where you had a there was a there was a, a ribbon cartridge, the black ribbon cartridge. In if you made a mistake, you take out the black ribbon cartridge, you stick it a white one, and then you could erase the word and take it out and stick in the black one again. And I loved the feel of the keys and the way the way it sounded when you tapped the keys, and it made this really fast clickety clack sound. It was just really awesome, and I loved typing on it. And so that's where I wrote my first story, and it started my love of typewriters and probably my love of words. Uh, but yeah, I've always been fascinated with typewriters uh, until my daughter came along. Everything I ever wrote, the first draft was always written on a typewriter. And I, I, I got rid of electric typewriters a long time ago. Now I only use manuals, but then tell me, Tony, you know, you got kids in the house. You can't, you can't type on a typewriter anymore. Yeah, yeah, and you, you don't want them to know you're being productive. If kids find out you're productive, then they're going to have a crisis. That you have to solve. <laughs> Everyone knows that. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was uh, bringing the research to to the fiction. So you're you go out there, and most of my research, I I I read a story in I read I read a passage, let's say, in an archive, and I'm like, oh, that's a cool story. And then I take the fact from that, and that is what makes it into the book. I'm, I'm informed by those. But when you're doing your research, when you went to Minnesota, for instance, to do research, were you, were you in archives and stuff like that? And were you were you taking were you taking accounts and fictionalizing them? How do you how do you how do you bring what you've learned to to the work that's already in progress? Because I'm talking here about book number two that you're working on. You're like, mm-hmm. okay, now I have to fit this new cool thing into an into an arc. That started before I knew this cool thing. Yeah, that's a really good that's a really good question because because it's something I've struggled with with the second book. It's taken me a lot longer to write the second one than than I had hoped it would. The first one came out in eight months. It was almost completed in eight months. It it just flowed out of me so quickly. And uh, the second one part of the issue is is the research. The, the first book there was not a whole lot of research about uh, about the people of the time. There was a lot of research about what happened, but not a lot of research about people. And so I could fictionalize so much uh, right. because I had this really nice box of here's exactly what happened. These guys came, they dug out the ore, and then they got rich, and then this other guy came in and stole it from them. And so then I could fictionalize a lot within that little box. But, but the second book 
takes place starts uh, a few years later, and that now suddenly because the Iron Range is now something that people know about, even at the time, there's a lot more history written about it. There's a lot more about the people. And so I find that it has been much harder to try to fit the narrative that I know I want to write within within this historical box yeah. that already exists. Sure. Is it sort of one of those things where there's so much more information that it's harder to kind of pick out the parts yes. you want? Is it yeah. sort of a that? Yeah. And it's, it's a big part that, that because there is so much information, it's harder to pick out the pieces. And, and there are so many more people that have stories to tell from uh, this later time period. Gotcha. Um, one of the things that's really impressive about the Iron Range that I, I, I know that there are people, and I've heard people on your podcast that are people that are, are trying to trying to write more about about history on the eastern shore that hasn't been done quite as well as i think it could right. oh yeah in minnesota there are like every single town has a historical society there is an iron an active one an active just, one no yeah. not not a not a passive one no an, an active <laughs> historical society the library where, where they literally they go out they collect they collect archives of things that people have they interview people they have there's there's in in Chisholm Minnesota there's an iron range research library that is completely dedicated to 125 years of life not not what ore is but i mean life on the iron range they have reams and reams of newspapers every newspaper that has ever been printed is available there are maps of towns from every single year that a town has existed even towns that no longer exist uh in the 1970s the iron range research center when they first existed went on a mission to interview every single person that was alive when the iron range was discovered and so then they have tapes interviews taped interviews of everyone who's ever been in the iron range from like who came in the early days and i sat there and listened to these tapes and it's just it's so much information and so yeah there's so much in my head that i i want to put in the book and i just can't and i'm having a really hard time trying to filter through and pick out the pieces that i that will fit into the story that i'm trying to tell without losing all of all of this history of the iron range that i also want to try to try to at least incorporate uh the feeling of get get the sense the grand scope of this history that that is there so one of the things that sometimes happens um here on the delmarva peninsula is people who uh are not native people who are come here oh that's me i'm a come here yeah come here so tony you're a come proudly <laughs> yeah tony is proud of his come here status um as a native daughter um but you know one of the things that sometimes I think people who are come here is kind of run into is how are you going to tell our story? You know, it was one thing for me as a native daughter to tell a story of the Chesapeake. People got it. It was fine. I didn't encounter any pushback. But there have been people I know who have come here been like, oh, there's this really interesting historical thing and I should tell the story. And there's a little bit of resentment or pushback. Was Did you encounter any of that as a writer with, or were they just happy to have anyone come tell this? Not anyone, but you know, happy to have someone come in to tell their story. Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. I, I, it 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 brings me to a point I'll get to in a minute. But um, no, actually, one of the things that I found when I was there, and I kind of expected it because I, I had never been to Minnesota. I mean, the first time I went to Minnesota, I was I was already through with the book. So how could I, a guy who's never been to Minnesota, write a book about Minnesota when I've never even been there? And before I started the project, I'd never even heard of the Misabi Range. I had no idea. So I kind of expected that the people that I would meet would actually give me that, would sort of push back. Sure. I reached out to a lot of people before I went up there to try to you know, say, here's what, I, here's what I'm going to come up there, here's what I'm doing. And every single person that I met, that I talked to, that I emailed with, that I had contact with, were amazingly supportive. 
and, and were eager to not only help but provide as much information as I needed. I sat down with, with one of the, the directors, a guy named Harry Lampa, at the Virginia Area Historical Society, and we talked for two hours just about his experiences, about life in Minnesota that he knew. He wasn't alive back then. He was born in the 30s probably, but, but we just sat down and talked about, about the life that he knew of Minnesota, and he was just so helpful and still is. And I met a, a former school teacher who helped me uh, with the Finnish language, some of the Finnish language that's in the book. And so she read the book and gave me feedback on how to properly, not only properly speak and, and write the Finnish words, but more about the Finnish culture and, and what, what the Finns brought to, brought to... What the food tastes like. What the food tastes like, how to properly pronounce sauna. It is, it is sauna, not sauna. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I, have, I, have a, I have a northeast exemption on all AU words. <laughs> but so, so after I moved, and, I, and I, I finished the book while I was there, and when I moved here, we were in the process basically of finalizing edits and getting the book, getting the book to print. And I found when I came here, I was, uh, I was amazed at how similar not only the, the landscape is, because the land on the eastern shore is very similar to the land in Minnesota. Really? And the only difference being that there aren't quite as many hills. But still, Minnesota is actually quite flat. It's not, it's not terribly hilly. Okay. Um, there are just as many. I mean, there's a lot of water here. There it's lakes, but here it's rivers. But there's still a lot of water here. Um, they eat muskrat, one of the few other places in the whole country that eats muskrat. There you go. They eat muskrat. I mean, they'll, okay. eat, they'll eat almost anything in Minnesota. So apparently so will we. So. <laughs> um, but there, there are a lot of trees. They do a lot of foresting there. The, the largest uh, 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 sawmill in the world from 1910 to about 1929 existed in Virginia, Minnesota. Wow. They, they turned out more white pine per day than any other sawmill in America. They built most of the houses that ex- that were built between, and basically right after World War One, were built from wood. They came from Virginia, Minnesota. So there's, I mean, there's a whole other story that you could write right there. Um, but what, I, what fascinated me was how similar that land was to this, all the trees and the sort of the way the people from the Eastern Shore are from the Eastern Shore. There's a lot of people that are from here, and they go away and they come back. And they, they, they are proud of their heritage. They're proud of being from the Eastern Shore. And Minnesotans or Rangers are the exact same way. They go away. They go to college. They go do something else. But they always want to come back. I met a woman in Duluth, Minnesota in October. I mean, in Minnesota, winters in Minnesota, let me tell you, they are bad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not uncommon to have, you know, 25 feet of snow and minus 35 degree temperatures without wind chill. Uh, there was a woman that I met in Duluth in October before, right, right sort of on the early edge of the winter season who had lived in Florida. She was born in the range. She moved to Florida when she was three and she was moving back to Minnesota from Florida of all places because she felt the range was her home. She belonged to Minnesota. Wow. I don't know that I could give up a Florida. I don't know that I could go to Florida from Minnesota. More power to her. People, when oftentimes people talk about Florida, they, they don't talk about their neighbors. They just talk about how, how nice, how, 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 how warm it is. They don't, they, don't, they don't talk about, you know, the meth, for example. That's a good point. <laughs> so just real quick, as we're pulling into the station here, the last thing we usually like to finish up talking about is uh, getting the book out, getting it marketed. Um, so you're, are, were you on your own for this? Did you get much help from, from your publishing partner here? Oh, yeah. We actually, so one of the things we did was we had a Kickstarter campaign that was really much more successful than I thought it would be. We raised about 125% of our goal, which was pretty modest, um, which basically paid for the, the printing of the book and also paid for me to go to Minnesota for a big publicity tour. 
and we hired a really good uh, publicist in Minnesota who ha- I was on TV shows and on oh, I was on the radio oh, I was fun. I was interviewed I was all over the place I felt like a star in Minnesota it was really nice and then I came back to the Eastern Shore and I was just me again it was kind of depressing <laughs> um, <laughs> like, I'm moving to Minnesota <laughs> but I, I had a really good I mean and everyone I met in Minnesota all over the state who who saw me and who read the book were all really impressed they were surprised that I wasn't from Minnesota first off but that then you know everyone who read the book they were like this is great when's the next one that's what they kept wanting to find out um and so but it's been it's been two years since it's been out and it's still doing relatively well i think it's still available for print it still sells a copy occasionally so oh that's good so are you doing some um i saw on your website that you're getting ready to do some talks locally to kind of i have done a couple of talks at uh, the local libraries uh which has been a lot of fun uh and and there are a lot of Especially sort of the older crowd in Ocean City and Ocean Pines who've been who've been here, come out and been really warm, warmly welcomed here. It was really nice. Good, yeah. good. Well, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad that your come here status is still is is working to your favor. <laughs> and so, what are what are some of the other things you have going on? You're writing this other book, but you do other writing as well. Um, I do. Well, I, I write whatever I can. Um, right now, my focus is really on on the historical fiction that I've been working on. I've got the second. Uh, the second the, to this trilogy, the, it's currently titled Misabi Settlers. Whether that stays that way, I don't know. But uh, I'm also writing a, a historical fiction book about the theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre in 1911. Oh, nice! Um, which is really cool. And I'm working on a musical uh, about King Arthur. I have a lot of I have a lot of things in the fire. I'm trying to write a lot of things. I try to keep myself busy with writing because if I don't keep myself busy with writing, I wind up not writing. <laughs> Well, I think that sort of ends up kind of being the thing. Like, we talked to somebody recently, and it was like, I can think of 300 things to do other than write. And I'm like, why do, why do writers, why do we do this to ourselves, you know? But Well, one of the, one of the things that, that they say is the reason writers tend to procrastinate is because they've always, back when they were having assignments, you know, in English class, they were always, if you're, if you're a professional writer, you were always very, very good, so you didn't have to... Like, you didn't have to do your homework. You could just do it at the last minute. And you just got good at doing it at the last minute. And now that's become, the last minute has kind of become a trigger for a lot of writers where it's like, no, now, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's why I always tell yeah. my story about uh, feeling like throwing up. That's, uh, I write like I throw up. It's like, ah, oh, I'm not ready yet, but it's, I feel it percolating. <laughs> and then eventually you're just going to sit down and knock it out. I, I've always found that I work really best, uh, not just under a deadline, but under a really, really tight deadline. And sometimes I'll wait till the v- day before to actually sit down and do it. I did it with a project I was just working on last week. And the day before, I thought, I think I should actually sit down. Maybe I'll actually write that today. I think it's a good idea. It's due tomorrow. That's a good time. <laughs> yeah, I think that like if I have a self-imposed deadline, then that means I have no deadline. And that's yeah. always the way that I look mm-hmm. at it. But I remember when, like, kind of busting your chops a little bit, Tony, about when you had your second book coming out. You were like, yeah, yeah I'm just gonna, you know, boom, get it done. It'll just boom. It'll happen. And then, like, 72 hours, I was like, how's going he's like yeah i'm, I'm kind of stuck and i was like oh it's not boom it just happened boom get it done so yeah my most recent book i wrote i wrote in a fever dream of just for just four days i i didn't sit down until four days before before my deadline and uh i didn't sleep but i drank a lot of whiskey and i got it done but uh and every time like last time it took a week last time i wrote it in a week and i'm like all right i'm never doing that to myself again but i i meant that next time i would take more time not less time but i guess <laughs> you know i guess i can't write a book an hour so i i think i've kind of bottomed out at the four day at the four day mark yeah that might be a new threshold there 
All right. Well, um, let's talk about socially. Where can we you be found socially um, and uh, and your website and give all that oh, uh, information so, out? So uh, let's see. You can find me on uh, uh, the project. The book is can you find it on Facebook uh, at uh, Masabi Project, Facebook.com slash Masabi Project, and on Twitter, Masabi Project, at Masabi Project, I guess it is. Mm-hmm. And, and it has a website, Masabi Project. Masabi Project.com is where you can find the book. Uh, and then my blog is at uh, rustlingread.com. Nice. And we'll make sure we have all the links uh, posted up on the podcast page. We'll make sure we have links and people know where they can go buy the book and, uh, and follow you on Twitter and all that sort of stuff. So we'll make sure that all gets on there. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. So What's Your Story was recorded at Saltwater Media, an indie book publisher in Berlin, Maryland. Find us at saltwatermedia.com and on social media. Want to hear more? Just follow along by subscribing on iTunes to hear more behind the story stories. Want other people to hear more? Give us a great review on iTunes. Tell your story.